From Cowdersport to Jeffersonville, Erie to Gettysburg, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, the May 16th primary election is rapidly approaching, with statewide judicial races, county, municipal, and school board races on the ballot. Chris Nicholas of Eagle Consulting is here with an overview. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Joe Geiger has Dr. Matthew Herford from the UPMC Health Plan in the Community Benefits Spotlight. And the American dream is slipping away from many Americans. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania offers some ideas for restoring the American dream on this week's Lincoln Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Chris Nicholas in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. A proposed state constitutional amendment that would give labor unions the power to charge so-called non-member fees to workers outside of their bargaining units would supersede existing state law has been advanced by the House Labor and Industry Committee. If enacted, the amendment would void laws that exempt non-represented workers from paying union dues, essentially forcing workers into a labor union, whether they want to be a member or not. The Commonwealth Foundation reports such an amendment would inflate budgets for school districts, law enforcement agencies, and other publicly funded services. For such an amendment to take effect, it would need to pass two consecutive sessions of the General Assembly and be approved by voters in a referendum. According to the Center Square, Pennsylvania State Treasurer Stacy Garrity is leading a coalition of state financial officials who are pushing back against new federal mortgage fees they call unconscionable. The fees will be levied against buyers with good credit to subsidize buyers with bad credit. Garrity said the new fees are a de facto middle-class tax hike that takes money away from people who played by the rules and did things right. The Lincoln Institute Spring 2023 Keystone Business Climate Survey was released this past week and found business owners and top executives by a two-to-one margin say Pennsylvania's economy is off on the wrong track. 44% of those polled said business conditions in the Commonwealth have gotten worse over the past six months, while only 15% think it has gotten better. Inflation was cited as the top concern of business leaders. Complete numeric results of the poll are available at lincolninstitute.org. And read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Voters will go to the polls on May 16th with primary battles for a seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court topping the ballot. But there will also be contests for county, municipal, and school board seats. Chris Nicholas is a veteran political consultant with Eagle Consulting. He's here now with all of the election details. Chris, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Chris, once again, we have a primary election staring us right in the face. This one is going to have a very, very lengthy ballot, unlike last year where we only had a couple of races on the ballot. So let's start out. We have statewide races for appellate court seats. Want to give us an overview? Sure, Loman. It's good to be with you again. Off-year elections, people tend to think aren't as important, but you're right. The ballot is much longer. So when Democrats and Republicans walk into the booth on May 16th, or if you're voting by mail and you have your uh, printed ballot in front of you, you will see people running for Supreme Court, Superior Court, and Commonwealth Court. The Supreme Court, there is one seat open, 
And it is open because the previous chief justice passed away late last year. Even if he had uh, not passed away, he would have hit the 75-year mandatory retirement age. So the Democrat, two candidates there, Deborah Kunzelman and Daniel McCaffrey. The Republicans have two people running also, Carolyn Carluccio and Patricia McCullough. So voters will narrow that field from two candidates to one. The Supreme Court, as the name implies, Loman, is the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court in the land. And it's also the oldest appellate court in the country uh, since the early 1700s. Below that is the Superior Court. And the Superior Court handles your run-of-the-mill appeals from cases that were adjudicated in county court. And the Democrats have three candidates running and the Republicans have two. So on the Democratic side, you'll see the names of Jill Beck, Tamika Lane, and Patrick Dugan. On the Republican side, you'll see the names Maria Batista and Harry Small. So on the Republican side, there are two candidates for two slots. On the Democratic side, there are three people for two slots. And then the other court, the one that gets the least amount of attention, is Commonwealth Court. That is a special court that handles when people or entities sue the state for workers' comp and unemployment comp appeals for election law. That's where it gets a lot of the press. On the Commonwealth Court, Loman, there is one opening, but each party is running two people. The Democrats are running Brian Neft and Matt Wolf. On the Republican side for Commonwealth Court, the two candidates are Megan Martin and Josh Prince. So voters across the state will have uh, choices in, in most of these races. And then after the primary, there'll be one Supreme Court candidate for the Democrats and one for the Republicans. There'll be two Superior Court candidates uh, for the Democrats and two for the Republicans, and then one each for Commonwealth Court. And in the general election, we'll choose between those candidates. Folks often, Chris, don't pay a whole lot of attention to these statewide judicial races, although the Supreme Court in particular has waded into a lot of very high-profile controversies over the last few years. What is the partisan breakdown? I know people don't like to think of courts in terms of partisanship, but it is a fact. On the Supreme Court, Loman, there are currently four Democrats, two Republicans, and one vacancy. The vacancy, as I said, is a Democratic vacancy. So Democrats obviously want to win that seat in the fall to hold what they have and continue what would then be their five to two majority. Republicans who have been on the short end of the stick in the Supreme Court for nearly a decade uh, desperately want to win this seat so they can get to uh, being down only four to three. Uh, when you're down only one one spot on a court, Loman, as you know, you can sometimes get over the hump, but it's harder to do that when you're down 5-2. So as in years past, the Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania in the fall will be a hot mess, as people would say, <laughs> and you're going to have people uh, supporting whoever the Democrats and Republicans nominate. You're also going to have outside groups coming in as well. So those are the only statewide races that every voter who goes to the polls in Pennsylvania here will be voting on. Now, this is also a local election year, and we have a wide range of county and municipal seats up. Want to give us a bit of a taste of what voters are going to see on their ballot there? 
So at the county level, Loman, this is kind of the on-off year. I know that sounds a bit odd, but people will go into the voting booth or, again, look at their paper ballot if they're voting by mail, and they'll see the county commissioners across the state up. They'll see other row offices like register of wills in many counties, but not all, the district attorney. So those types of things, county treasurer, et cetera. And those offices have a lot of impact on your daily life, perhaps even more so than the federal office holders who get the bulk of the press. When you look at the counties, uh, Republicans control more counties uh, than Democrats do. That doesn't mean they're they control over more population because the larger counties are uh, more likely to be Democratic. But in terms of the number of counties actually held in control, it skews to the Republicans. And then you have all of those row offices, and those are places where people every week are going in and out of to try and get a dog license, trying to pay a tax, trying to file their will from their parents who passed away, stuff like that. So it's the county courthouses are a hub of activity, and people are much more likely to be there week in, week out than trekking down to D.C. So take your time with, with those positions. There may not be as many primaries for them. The general election may be more where those decisions are made. We are talking with veteran political consultant Chris Nicholas with Eagle Consulting about the municipal election, municipal primary election that is taking place here uh, coming up in just a few days. And uh, Chris, speaking of municipalities, of course, uh, voters will also be electing people who run their cities, boroughs and townships, making them obviously the most important positions on the ballot. Well, it's not just those township and borough officials. It's also school boards. So I often describe odd-year races like this as the year where you see two, three, or four names on a yard sign because you might have in my township there are three open slots for township commissioners. So the signs have three people on them and such. So these are the people that might be the mayor of your town, might be if you live in a township by their supervisors or commissioners. If you live in a smaller borough, they might be council members and such, and they're going to be deciding your local taxes, your local services, uh, how your streets get plowed, how the community pool gets run in the summer, right? And then school board, uh, there are uh, 500 operating school districts in Pennsylvania, and some of them are small and some of them are quite large. The one I live in, the one we both live in actually here in Dauphin County is very large. And because it's so big, they have different regions within the school board. So in some school boards, not every position is up every couple of years because they have to, in my case, I live in region one of my school board district. And I think you live in, three. in, in region three. three. So you can tell there's you know more regions. So there's been a lot of sturm and drang the last couple of years <laughs> at the school board level because you have – a lot of parents after the COVID epidemic getting re-energized in terms of wanting to be involved in their local municipalities and especially their school boards. So some year the school board races are very sleepy and some years like 2021 and I think again this year, you know, whatever the opposite of sleepy is, that's what it's going to be. Doesn't mean it's going to be that in every single school district. But especially in the larger ones that are more diverse, and in years past, it's often been on on more tax and spending issues. You know, they 
They build a new school, and some people think it was the Taj Mahal and cost too much, so there's turnover. This year, as in 21, it seems to be more locked in on perhaps social issues, what books are at the library, what kids are being taught, what pronouns are being used, you know, what the bathrooms are. And I have some people who kind of scoff at that and laugh, and I'm like, look, you know, this concerns your kids mm-hmm. or, or your grandkids. Uh, what's more important to most people than their kids or grandkids? Uh, nothing. So this can really inflame passions. But again, it's kind of hit or miss. You could have a school district where things are aflame and parents are getting angry with each other and there's really a lot of activity in their school board races. And then the next district over, not so much. So it's not – I don't want people to think I'm saying every school board race in, in the state's going to be like that. But there is more organized effort on both sides, the more conservative side, the more traditional liberal side this year than I've seen in, in a long time. We do have that primary election coming up here in just a few days, May 16th. Also, Chris, uh, mail-in ballots are still a thing. So actually, the voting's already begun, hasn't it? In our elections, there's a 50-day window prior where you can get a ballot sent to you in the mail, paper ballot, and then you fill it out and and send it back. So I I don't think we'll see quite as many of them in this primary because the turnout's lower, but in the general election for sure. Chris Nicholas of Eagle Consulting talking about the upcoming May primary election. Chris, if folks want to learn more about you and what you do, where can they find you? On the internet, Loman, you can find my company at eagleconsult.com. And if you're on Twitter, I am at Eagle 63. Chris Nicholas of Eagle Consulting. Chris, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure, Loman. The recent hospitalization of U.S. Senator John Fetterman for treatment of clinical depression has put a spotlight on mental health. May is Mental Health Month, and Joe Geiger sat down for a conversation about mental health with Dr. Matthew Herford from the UPMC Health Plan. Joe? Thank you, Loman, and thank you, Dr. Herford, for being a guest on the Lincoln Radio Program. Good to be with you. Dr. Herford, mental health illness is a huge issue in our country. It seems like it's bigger now than any other time in history. In our day-to-day lives, we may experience the normal range of human emotions, sadness, joy. There may be times when we go through stressful life events, losing a loved one, job change, even Happy things like birth of a child can be stressful. And our bodies react to that stress in lots of different ways. And most of the time, we get through it relatively brief period of time. And maybe we have a bad night's sleep, something like that. But we tend to come back to what feels like our normal selves. But when we don't, when things feel like they are not getting back to normal, that might be a sign that this could be a mental illness. For example, when people have really persistent feelings of sadness, hopelessness, or maybe even thoughts about hurting themselves, that can really suggest that this may have gone beyond normal grief or bereavement and entered into what we call clinical depression or major depression. Similarly, for things like anxiety, after people have experienced really stressful events, it's normal to feel anxious or stressed for a few days, maybe even a week after that. But if it starts to last longer and starts to interfere with things that we need to do in our day-to-day lives, like sleeping, eating, going to work or school, and just being 
being able to enjoy the things that we normally enjoy in our lives, that can also be an indication. It's important to remind folks that in the same way that we wouldn't expect them to be able to diagnose diabetes or heart disease on their own, people shouldn't be expected to know the difference sometimes between normal stress, anxiety, or sadness and mental illness. That's why this month, during Mental Health Awareness Month in particular, we really want to encourage people to talk about their emotional and mental health and seek treatment. Talk to the doctor, talk to a therapist, uh, if you have any questions at all about yourself or loved one's mental health. Well, individuals may not even understand that they're experiencing mental health illness. What I'm aware of is that when mental health illness happens to someone, it doesn't just happen to them, it happens to the whole family. How can family members, friends, or other loved ones who may be struggling with your mental health illness intercede? Well, friends and family and community are such an important part to our overall health and well-being. So I'm really glad that you've asked this question because oftentimes it can be hard for us to diagnose ourselves. If we're going through a mental health challenge, we may just think, I'm going through a rough patch or I need to just pull myself out of it. It's oftentimes our friends or family members that notice that we're just not ourselves. And so really important that if you're worried about somebody that you care about, that you start the conversation with them. You know, if you had a family member or a good friend that you hadn't seen in a while and came into the room limping, you wouldn't think twice about saying, hey, what's wrong with your leg? Well, when you notice that somebody's been crying a lot more, missing work, or not doing things that they would normally do, like their hobbies or spend time with their family, that's kind of the emotional equivalent of a limp. And it's our responsibility as somebody that loves and cares about our friends and family members to ask them about that. This is Joe Geiger in the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Herford with UPMC Health Plan, the president and CEO of UPMC's Community Care Behavioral Health Organization. Sounds like a big responsibility. Dr. Herford, do we see a growth in any segment of our age population in the United States with mental health illness? Are young kids having more of it than they used to? Is it older adults? Uh, Tell us about what your findings show. It's a mixed bag. So there are some areas where we're making really terrific progress for some conditions at some ages. And there are others where, particularly over the last few years during the COVID pandemic, where we saw the trends moving in the wrong direction. So for years leading up to the COVID pandemic, we started to see some really good trends in terms of things like declining rates of suicide, declining rates of overdose, fatal overdose from drug or alcohol use, and the the emotional health of our young people, students, children, adolescents. However, during the pandemic, not surprisingly, we saw some of that backslide. It affected people of all ages. So, for example, school-aged children started to report poor mental health at a higher rate, almost 30% of school-aged children reporting that they had experienced poor mental health over the last year. Almost 25% have reported some suicidal thinking or considered suicide seriously. Somewhere around 3% were actually injured by a suicide attempt. When we go to the opposite end of the life cycle and talk about older Americans, we know that we're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness in the country. And 
you've learned a tremendous amount over, particularly over the last 10 years, about how much of a health concern loneliness is. It turns out that not having close friends and connections with family has a profoundly negative impact, not only on our emotional health, talking things like depression and anxiety, but also our physical health. Social loneliness increases the rates of Alzheimer's disease, cardiac disease, and stroke. So building healthy relationships is Strengthening them not only supports our mental health, it also supports our physical health. It seems like things are changing so rapidly culturally in this country as well for our older adults. It's not the same country that they grew up in where they never locked the door when they left the home. And then you go to the extreme of what's happening in our cities and and so forth. I asked the question about age groups because... Younger people seem to have exposure to more things that we never had growing up, and older people having the exposure to the changes that are going on just can't feel good. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the pace of change, some of the, the, the things that you mentioned, is really significant. I think we can go back and say, you know, every generation experiences a real difference between what their experience growing up was and when they look at a younger generation. But there's something about what's happening particularly over the last 10 years or so where these trends really feel like they're accelerating. And I, again, I think the pandemic had a great deal to do with that. We lost a lot of the opportunities we had to engage with each other, build those healthy connections, not just with our friends and family, but with the community at large. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest this month is Dr. Matthew Herford, the president and CEO of UPMC's Community Care Behavioral Health Organization. Dr. Herford, I really appreciate you being a guest on the program to address this very, very important issue, and uh, we could all use your, your resources and advice on this matter. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, John. America is a land of opportunity, but is the American dream slipping out of reach for many Americans? Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania talks about it on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. America was built on the idea that anything is possible with hard work and a dream, but it does not feel like that today. In his first two years in office, President Biden has pursued the most extreme elements of an out-of-touch, progressive agenda that sees the growth of government as the solution to virtually every problem. Instead of empowering people, they chose to empower bigger government. And for its part, Congress has proven unable or unwilling to tackle the toughest problems facing the nation. The result is our country is drowning in debt. A New York Post business headline recently reading, excessive Biden budget plan would cause national debt to hit nearly $51 trillion by 2033. Inflation has skyrocketed and Americans are paying more and getting less, working harder but still struggling to reach their goals. For way too many, they don't feel like they have a fair shot at achieving their American dream. It seems like the system is rigged against them. The challenges leaders in Washington are supposed to help solve are only more entrenched. The American dream is becoming further and further out of reach. Americans are looking for new leadership committed to solving these problems. 
voters have sent a clear message in the past three elections that leaders in both parties are not meeting expectations. Our national debt now stands at more than $31 trillion, including almost $8 trillion in new debt that was added under the previous administration. Americans for Prosperity is committed to changing the trajectory of the country toward one guided by core American principles that will help to reignite the American dream and unleash prosperity for all. To do that, we need leaders who will turn the page on today's broken politics and fulfill America's promise by focusing on the issues that matter most. At AFP, our focus will be on seven distinct policy areas at the federal and state levels that seek to empower people. First, creating an economy of abundance where every American, regardless of their background, has the opportunity to succeed and thrive. Second, ending Washington's wasteful spending and being honest about the need to reform the biggest drivers of our debt so we do not bankrupt our children's future. Third, putting education in the hands of parents and students by empowering and trusting families to make the decisions that best meet their unique needs. Four, providing a personal option in healthcare to improve quality, lower costs, and ensure decisions are made by doctors and patients, not politicians or insurance company middlemen. Fifth, securing our borders and fixing our broken immigration system. Sixth, keeping communities safe by funding our police departments and focusing criminal justice resources where they matter most, which is preventing and prosecuting violent crime. And seventh, standing up to defend America's First Amendment and reject cancel culture so Americans are free to speak their minds and government cannot silence its citizens. These efforts will show what's possible when people are empowered with the freedom and opportunity to pursue their American dream and reach their full potential. To learn more and connect with a member of our Pennsylvania chapter of AFP, email us at infopa at afphq.org. That's infopa at afphq.org. We have policy and political tactical trainings happening across the state. We have social events connecting like-minded Pennsylvanians in communities from Hazleton to Emmaus to Hanover up to Erie. We have citizen contact phone banks and canvassing happening daily that you can get plugged into in order to reach the number of Pennsylvanians necessary to turn the page on the Biden administration and chart a new course of abundance for America. There's an avenue of connection that will suit your unique interests, and we cannot wait to get to know you and have you join an unparalleled grassroots effort that will reignite the American dream. I'm Ashley Klingen-Smith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. You can connect with us on Facebook by searching at P-A-A-F-P and can follow us on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. 
If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 28 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth. They include WWSMAM in Lebanon, WRAKAM in Williamsport, along with WRYVFM in Milroy, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania.